0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, Memorial Day, stories of the very best wartime pilots, America's fighter aces. To earn that distinction, they had to have destroyed at least five enemy planes. Ninety-eight-year-old retired Captain David Wilhelm of Denver is one of them. He flew the agile P-51 Mustang in World War II. Wilhelm says the B-51 was the best plane to be in when he fought the Germans.
1: When our bombers would head to bomb their oil facilities or factories, they were attacked by a horde of German 109 airplanes. And so our mission was to keep those Nazi planes from shooting down our bombers.
0: And that wasn't easy. The fighter pilot didn't just fly the single-engine plane. As the only one on board, he was also navigator, often flying for several hours to reach his target.
1: We'd have to get to our target without any modern, present-day electronics. We did it almost by just a straight compass reading. By day standards, very uh, elementary.
0: And, of course, he had to be his own gunner, too. He needed to get behind enemy aircraft for the best shot during aerial battles known as dogfights.
1: And you wanted to be damn sure that he didn't get on your tail. Because if he got on your tail, then you had to work like the devil to keep from getting hit by his shooting. So we'd be contorting up and down and around, and it was either you're going to get shot down or you would shoot him down.
0: Captain Wilhelm shot down six Nazi planes over Eastern Europe in 1944. He says unlike a lot of the other aces, he can't reconstruct the details of those battles. He had to rely on pilots who witnessed his victories or the camera mounted on his plane. After the war, he bought and ran a cattle ranch in Fraser. Wilhelm is among the aces profiled in the book Wings of Valor, honoring America's fighter aces. Denver photographer Nick Del Calzo and writer Peter Collier put it together. Nick is in the studio, and Peter joins us from Northern California, where he lives. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Peter, tell us more about what it meant to become an ace. We know that it was a certain minimum of planes you had to shoot down, but what else?
2: The whole concept of the ace actually arises from what would have to be called the dawn of aerial warfare, which is World War I. Initially, planes were used, but nobody knew quite what to do with them. The ground forces, the great generals who led all those millions of men to slaughter, were obsessed with ground warfare. They didn't want to believe that there could be advantages to another form of warfare uh, in the air, but they saw that these planes were tremendously effective in reconnaissance missions. Soon, they were using other planes to shoot down reconnaissance planes of their enemies, and the men in these planes were armed with shotguns, pistols, you know, rifles, and they were just uh, taking pot shots at the other pilots. So it was—it was less a question at that point of any
0: kind of bombardments, but of planes fighting planes. I mean, it sounds like with, with yeah, with guns in the cockpit.
2: Yeah, it was pretty primitive. There was bombardment. Uh, the, the earliest form of bombing was for the the navigator and the backseater as they would call them today in a plane having a load of mills bombs or hand grenades uh, as they were variously called and just kind of dropping them over enemy lines huh. planes established first their efficacy as observation vehicles and you know able to to see these advancing armies and that sort of thing and then the French, actually, who always get bad rap for having bad planes, but they began to experiment with and, and found a, uh, a way of mounting a machine gun behind the propeller, although the little ironic Philip to that would be that they also armed the blades with steel to deflect the shots, some of which were hitting the propellers. And then their first great flyer was a guy named Roland Garros. He got, using this primitive form of... Uh, aerial armament he got five enemy planes, five German planes, and they called him an ace because it was unheard of, and that term stuck as did the requirement for becoming an ace, which is shooting down, killing, as they would say later on, five enemy planes fascinating, so
0: and of course, tennis fans will know Roland Garros as the site of the French open or the other name for that
2: event, right so aces. Originate with France, not in the United States. It did, of course. The Germans, with their efficiency, they actually forced this guy Roland Garros down and looked at his plane and saw the you know these uh, ironclad propellers and thought, well, instead of hitting your propeller every three times, why don't you synchronize the fire so that it'll go through the propeller as it, you know in sync with the revolutions? And so <laughs> they they immediately did that and had a huge advantage it was you know it was a aerial arms race from the beginning and by 1916 all of the elements were there bombers fighter planes uh, that were involved in aerial combat with each other and dogfighting, and even carrier-based planes. And the planes at the beginning were equipped, in some cases, with one-way radios, then eventually two-way radios. So the stage was set, really, for World War II, which would become, if you will, the the golden age of aerial combat and dogfighting. This has its roots in World War I, and
0: I wonder, Nick Calza, why it was important to photograph and collect the stories of of these pilots, the ones who remain.
3: Well, as it turned out, uh, as you may know, uh, Peter and I did a Medal of Honor book called Medal of Honor, Portraits of Valor Beyond the Call of Duty. In which you took the images of of Medal of Honor winners. Of recipients, yes, recipients of the Medal of Honor. When I learned about the aces and um, they were becoming an endangered species by all means and And so in 2012— That that
0: is, they were advanced in age and dying off, right?
3: That is correct. Most of these ACEs were in their 90s. And the time I started the project, I felt that these men who helped save lives on the ground and on ships because they protected ships as well as they protected larger aircraft as support. So I felt these men deserved uh, the attention— of being paid a tribute. So I started photographing them in two thousand and twelve. In that particular time there were only 160 of these men alive after fourteen hundred and fifty that ever received the ACE designation. And oh, that was very goodness. comparable to Medal of Honor recipients as well. But the clock was ticking. The clock was ticking very rapidly as a result of that. When I started the project, there were 160, and in one year they lost 22. Wow. So I felt the urgency to capture them on film as much as possible. As a result, although I wanted to photograph every single one of these men and ended up having 82 in the book, I felt that this was not about me and my photography. So I elected to recruit Uh, photographers in the various locations where these men were scattered across the United States and made an agreement that they would photograph them as soon as possible. So I'd have the image and
0: then Peter would follow on interviewing them for the portraits. And deploying photographers that way allowed you to get to these surviving aces uh, before it was too late And uh, much of the book is about aces who flew during World War II, which we heard earlier from Peter was something of the golden age of Mm -hmm. aerial warfare. I want to hear some of of their stories. So some aces were also Medal of Honor recipients, uh, the highest military decoration. And Peter, tell us about U.S. Marine Corps Reserve Colonel James Sweat.
2: Well, he's a kind of archetypal example of an ace. In many ways, he's very cocky, can do. The bullet hasn't been made with my name on it, that sort of thing. He was stationed in Guadalcanal, which was the first great bloody U.S. victory in the war. Guadalcanal was held at great risk and with great difficulty by this small, what was called the Cactus Air Force for some reason. Part of the story of these guys is not only incredible acuity as fighters, but also many of these stories are stories of endurance and survival. And this is the, his case. He went out one of his first missions. He got two Japanese fighters, shot him down. Then he himself got shot down after getting five more. So he got seven kills in his first day basically in combat he was forced down he had to bail out uh, or actually ditch he had to ditch because he was too low to bail out he got into his one-man craft and some japanese fighter as they actually often did with the u.s tried to kill him in the water he hid under his raft and managed to survive after three hours fearing that he was bleeding so badly to attract sharks he was rescued and the u.s navy guy that pulled him aboard said I'm going to give you two shots, one of morphine and one of scotch. So he survived that, and in a matter of weeks, he was back up in a Corsair now, which was one of the most feared weapons in the war, and he shot down again. And he was rescued by a native uh, outrigger and the Australian Coast Guard spotters who really helped U.S. airmen so much got him to a U.S. ship and he was able to survive yet one more time. He was just steely-eyed uh, killer of enemy planes. In, in the Battle of Okinawa, when the kamikazes were attacking planes, he, he shot down three more and then his own ship, the Bunker Hill, was hit finally by a kamikaze, which killed 400 of the seamen on it, and he had to land on the USS Enterprise. And his orphan plane was just because there was no space; it was pushed off into the ocean. I mean, it was it was one really one adventure after another. Yeah, exactly. It's,
0: it's not just uh, his ability to shoot down enemy aircraft; it's his ability to survive and survive again. In these circumstances. And you you made a differentiation there between, what was it, uh, ditching the plane and
2: um, bailing out.
0: out. Just put a finer point on that for me.
2: Well, he was actually too low. When you're too low, your parachute won't open and you have to ditch. That is, hit the water, do a wheels up landing on the water and uh, try to get out of your plane. In his case, it dragged him down 25 feet and he managed to get up only because he popped his May West, what they called his May West life vest, and it it dragged him up to the surface after interminable, seemingly interminable time underwater. Wow,
0: the, the May West. I'm I'm guessing that that has to do with its buoyancy, um, and we'll we'll leave it there. Uh, but I, I think it's you know remarkable to note how few pilots became aces. Uh, I mean, what what
2: give us a sense for how hard that is. Some of these statistics are impressionistic, but um, what I've heard, maybe Nick remembers something better, but I've heard 5% of all flyers involved in aerial combat became ACE and that they were responsible for over 50% of all the kills, those 5%. What did you want
0: out of the images then that came of these ACEs, Nick? Um, You know, some of them are profile, some of them are head-on there's some really beautiful images in which their younger selves are kind of ghosted in the background. What did you want to achieve visually with these men?
3: Well, certainly, you know, try to do something different from page to page. i looking at portraits of these elderly gentlemen, but I thought it would be interesting whenever possible to provide an archival photograph of when they were in their teens and 20s and so forth. So I I wanted to create a composition photograph.
0: And sometimes they're photographed with a, a medal or some item that's of great importance to them. Indeed. So we try to make something different and compelling
3: uh, so that the viewer would get a sense of that individual by looking at the portrait as well as the Peter's wonderful stories.
0: And so in the case of Marine Corps... Reserve Colonel James Sweat. It's a lovely image of him in profile. And I'd like to explore with you, Peter Collier, why there are fewer aces uh, being named these days. It, really, Vietnam was the last war in which there were a, a lot considered aces.
2: By the time the Vietnam War was fought, the large pitch battles between opposing contingents of aircraft had really faded and uh, The Vietnamese, they didn't come up that often and they didn't have the planes to have these huge dogfights. And as a matter of fact, the last two aces we have had and possibly will ever have were in Vietnam. There are only two of them, one of whom I believe is going to be on your show. And uh, they had all of the qualities of these World War II and even Korean aces, but it was um, really hard to get five enemy kills because there weren't that many enemy. And uh, who knows? We may have pitched aerial battles again, but it seems to me that if we do have an ace in the future, it will be somebody working a joystick rather than somebody working the controls and armament of a plane.
0: The question will be whether you operate, say, a drone and uh, knock out five enemy aircraft if, if you can be an ace in a, in a exactly. different regard. Nick Talcalzo, how did the the men that you photographed, and again, you you sent a a kind of army of photographers to capture these ACES photographs, but the the ones that you did, how did they feel about having their portraits taken?
3: Well, of course, uh, very similar to the Medal of Honor recipient, they were somewhat reluctant, didn't feel as though they did anything really special. There was, however, a challenge, because the men in their 90s, as you know, they became... uh, somewhat frail, and not only in their physical, but in their mental acuity. And that was a challenge to complete portraits of individuals who, in one case, didn't want his portrait completed. While on the set in his home, creating the image, uh, it turned me down three times. But his family members convinced him that this should be done and, and insisted on it. Well, it was a very surprising moment when he had a sample of the aircraft that he flew as a model in his hands. His mental awareness became a surprising look on his face. And that was a very special moment to photograph him at that time. And that was the one that was chosen. So he came alive at that specific moment.
0: Ah, And who is this? Uh, Robert Millikan. Robert Milliken. and And there's the photo with him. Holding the model, and once again, a younger version of himself standing next to an aircraft, uh, sort of ghosted in the background.
2: I just wanted to say something about Nick's photography. The juxtaposition of these photographs, that is, the archival image of these young men out to conquer the world and conquer the enemy and do whatever is necessary to bring victory home, and uh, the juxtaposition between that image, you know, so full of life, so full of confidence, uh, and these men at really the end of their trail, it's really kind of haunting in a way. It shows the content of their character. But you also have this eerie sense of the weathering effects of life and that life extracts its toll on people, however heroic they were 50, 60, 70 years ago.
0: We have posted some of the photos of these flying aces at cprnews.org. Uh, Aviator Charles Lindbergh made the first solo nonstop flight across the Atlantic. That was in 1927, some 90 years ago this year. And uh, because of that, he was a hero to many of the young men who became fighter pilots during World War II. And one of the aces, Peter, has a strange story about meeting Lindbergh during the war. Will you tell us that story?
2: Lindbergh was an ideal for almost all of these guys as teenagers and a lot of them wanted to become flyers because of him. And also, by the way, it it needs to be said that the ideal of being an ace is transmitted from one generation of flyers to another. So a lot of the guys who became aces in World War II had, as boys, not only seen Lindbergh fly and the, understood the romance of flight, but had also read about Eddie Rickenbacker, who was a household name then, and the other American aces of World War One. So... Hmm the ideal becomes part of your, your kind of way of seeing yourself as a possible flyer. Now, this guy Perry Dahl, one of the aces, did actually meet Lindbergh. Lindbergh was, uh, you know, after all his troubles with the uh, Roosevelt administration, managed to wangle his way into the Pacific, and New Guinea particularly, and he was there because he was trying to teach pilots. He was something of a wonk, and he was trying to teach pilots how to do better fuel conservation So he was there and he was assigned to this fellow Perry Dahl's squadron. And one day, you know, Lindbergh, who was not the friendliest or most clubbable of men, comes up to him and says, hey, let's go fishing. And, you know, when Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh actually go fishing, go fishing with him. <laughs> so Perry Dahl says, okay. And he, they they walk to the shore and uh, there's one of these huge rafts that the B-24 bombers used when they went down. And it was unfurled in there and they got in and Lindbergh kind of rode them out past the breakwater. And Perry Dahl is thinking, what the heck? We don't have any fishing poles. Then we they got someplace and without saying anything, Lindbergh picked out three or four hand grenades, pulled the plug threw them in the water, and yeah, the water explodes, and these stunned fish come up to the surface, and then they, he dives in, and Dahl dives in after him, and they pick up these fish, and that night the squadron has a fish for
0: him. <laughs> I'm surprised the fish were still
2: intact, if you were talking about
0: a grenade. Yeah,
2: uh, geysers of water. But all this without a word, with, you know, kind of classic Charles Lindbergh, Scandinavian kind of dignity.
0: And uh, this gentleman who met him, Dahl, had... Really, some close calls of his own as a pilot, I think of the time that he
2: he lost power. well, he lost power because he was rammed by another p thirty uh, eight one of his comrades, and that happened not infrequently because of the close quarters of these dogfights of people swirling around each other, trying to trying to get the inside angle always on the other plane and so he went down and uh, he managed to get into his life raft and managed to get to shore, and he has his pistol, and he sees some guy come out of the bush with a huge machete, and he fires his pistol. Unfortunately, it misfired, and then he yells, Americano! And the guy looks at him and says, why the hell do you try to kill me? It turned out to be a very well-educated Filipino guerrilla, you know, and for a month or so, this guerrilla and others took Dahl from one island to another until he was finally found by U.S. scouts. By that point, he was 90 pounds. He survived it. And for him, the memorable aspect of being an ace was that adventure rather than shooting down the planes per se. And he'd shot down nine. Remember, it's just yeah, right. It's
0: five for yeah. an ace. It was he, almost a double ace. These men got an
3: additional honor, didn't they, Nick? Yes. Actually, um, two years ago, the United States Congress. Designated the Congressional Gold Medal for their achievements. And that ceremony occurred in Washington, D.C., well-deserved indeed.
0: The fact is, um, Peter Collier, that to become an ace, you almost necessarily have to take lives. And I wonder if if the men reflected on that with you.
2: Well, some of them did. Uh, I'll be honest with you and say surprisingly few of them did. I mean, they were still... Uh, A lot of them, particularly those who had fought in the Pacific, were still, you know, they remember Pearl Harbor. They remember that day and what it did to a couple thousand U.S. servicemen. And uh, there's been relatively little hands across the water sort of thinking. I mean, they, of course, don't fulminate continually about JAPs and all that stuff any longer. But a lot of them were taken out of air combat after they had achieved a certain level and brought home to teach other young men how to fly. And a lot of them who had that experience resented it. They wanted to stay and, as one of them said, kill more. And also, it must be said that this was not just killing. While there was not a lot, I think, of a reflection, the way uh, when Nick and I did this book about the remaining recipients of the medal of honor a lot of them told me when i interviewed them that the first thing they had done after this engagement usually uh, involving hand to hand combat or something close to it and involving the killing of up to a couple dozen people in some cases first thing they did was try to find a chapel and pray about what they had done and pray for the people they had killed i think Air combat is a little less personal, and so it's it's about a machine going after another machine. This does, though, make me
0: think of a story about U.S. Air Force Reserve Colonel Richard Candelaria, uh, who'd wanted to be a pilot and an ace from the time he was a
2: boy, and um, he he would have a a drink with the enemy, right? Yeah, he did have a drink with the enemy, but he had a an adventure. That was almost unparalleled. He was shot down. He had to make a crash landing because he was too low over Germany, too low to bail out. And it began a several-day odyssey of him trying to stay a step ahead of these German military men who were pursuing him. At one point, they caught up with him, a couple of them and he tried to surrender. He waved his white flyer scarf at them and they started shooting and he pulled out his forty five and as he told me I aimed for their belt buckle and in both cases I hit him directly in the forehead. He killed both of them Then another couple of days, he was on the run and he finally went into a little village and tried to hole up there. And uh, unlike the image uh, of the Pacific villagers uh, who want to be apart from the war that we often get from war films, these guys wanted to kill him. And he was actually saved by a a German officer who otherwise he would have been pitchforked to death. And he was put in a prison. And he and a couple of uh, British flyers managed to overpower a German officer and steal a staff car and drive it uh, all the way to Belgium. And they come over the border in Belgium and they find out the war was over two days earlier. And tell us about this drink that he had. Well, the officer that rescued him from the these uh, villagers who wanted to kill him and lynch him, basically, or pitchfork him, pulled out the cognac and they were singing Lily Marlane and that sort of thing. And... The German officers said, in effect, you're a good guy, and my people live in Wisconsin in flawless English. Wow. It's a small
0: world, even when the world is at war. Peter, before we go, did you find that any of the aces looked up the other fighters they had
2: fought against? Some of them did a lot of archival research in their later life about their engagements, and some of them did find the enemy flyers that they had flown against— Even in some cases, they found the actual individual and uh, in some cases made contact with them, not overly sentimental, but in some sense, you know, this is the time of their life. This was their rendezvous with destiny and uh, the desire to kind of live that experience fully in the long half-life of it was felt very strongly by them. And so some of them did actually go to the, in one case, to Romania, where one of the German pilots had relocated and met him. And some of them uh, were very interested in understanding more about this epical moment that they had engaged in. Because when it happened, it was so fast. It was, you know, bullet-like in its speed, and they wanted to reflect on it more fully. Well, gentlemen, thank
0: you so much for sharing the story of these fighting flying aces with us. Thank Thank you. you. Now let's hear from the man who may be America's last fighter ace, retired Air Force Brigadier General R. Stephen Ritchie of Seattle. During the Vietnam War, the Air Force Academy graduate and longtime Colorado resident flew 339 missions in the F-4 Phantom. He describes the day he shot down two enemy MiG jets.
4: We met head-on at uh, over 500 miles an hour each, and we go into a maneuvering fight to try to get behind each other. This all takes place in a total of a minute and 29 seconds.
0: Ritchie says it's hard to explain what it's like to be in that kind of high-tech aerial battle, which is happening all around you.
4: And if you haven't been in that three-dimensional sphere and experienced the, all of the pressures, the G-forces, the speed, the visual requirements, the hearing requirements, all of the different types of communication, the surface-to-air missiles, the anti-aircraft artillery, all of the things that can go wrong, all the things that have to go right. There's no way to describe it.
0: He says there are any number of reasons he might have never shot down five enemy planes and become an ace, not the least of which was the unreliable nature of the missiles he used. They only worked 11 times out of 100. He fired three, the first two downed one enemy MiG, and the third hit a second enemy jet.
4: I was too close. I was pulling too many Gs. So I had three perfect missiles under those circumstances, and the chances of that are virtually zero.
0: Ritchie also had many brushes with death during the Vietnam War, like the time he got hit by an enemy shell. The
4: angle of that shell was so perfect that it came into the intake, it went through the engine, took out a bunch of rotor blades and went out at the rear of the engine. The likelihood of that, probably 10,000 to one. Um, The likelihood that it didn't cut fuel and hydraulic lines and uh, the airplane didn't come apart, which is what should have happened. But the airplane stayed together and uh, flew back to Da Nang and landed
0: safely. He says surviving close calls like that made him grateful. But it also makes him wonder why he made it and his best friend didn't. His friend Woody died when a plane piloted by someone else went down.
4: You know, I've never been able to forget that and never been able to understand how come I made it and he didn't. And he was missing for 30 years. We found his remains in Laos and identified him through DNA. And I went back to Hickam in Hawaii where they process all of the remains from that part of the world. And escorted his remains back to D.C. and buried him in Arlington. And it's hard to this day to realize, how come I had all those close calls and survived? And ended up being victorious and ended up getting all this publicity and attention. And Woody was in the back seat and um, had no control over what happened and died because of it. That's a hard question to answer.
0: 75-year-old Steve Ritchie is one of only a dozen fighter aces still living. He and David Wilhelm, who we heard from earlier, are among the combat pilots profiled in the new book Wings of Valor, Honoring America's Fighter Aces by Denver photographer Nick Delcalzo and writer Peter Collier. We've posted photos from the book at cprnews.org. When veterans die, they're entitled to a flag presentation and other military honors. But one veteran here, Louis Oliveira, says he was shocked and angry when he went to the funeral of a friend's father, a World War II veteran, and there was no recognition of his service. So now Oliveira helps bring this sound to burials at Fort Logan National Cemetery in Denver. The Honor Bell, told 400 times in the past year, and Oliveira is with us on this Memorial Day. Welcome to the
5: program. Well, thank you. This is an honor to be here.
0: Tell me more about what motivated you to build the Honor Bell.
5: Sure. So about seven years ago, I attended a funeral of a World War II veteran, my best friend's father, and uh, they had requested military honors, in his case, from the Army. And we waited 30 minutes We waited 45 minutes. Finally, after about an hour, the clergy came up and said, listen, we we have to move on. We have to get this show on the road. And so this veteran, part of our greatest generation, was buried with no military honors whatsoever. And it just angered me. So I did some research and I found out that there are nearly a thousand veterans that are passing away every day in this country. Just here in Colorado, we have about 50 passing away each day. And uh, I was really kind of shocked about that. And so I thought, there must be something I can do to make a difference. And so we started the honor bell.
0: We're going to talk more about the bell itself in a moment. But have you heard anecdotally or officially that other service members who died also haven't gotten the military honors they deserve? Uh,
5: Or is what you experienced something of an outlier? There has been nationally a drastic uh, decrease in the availability for military honors. And uh, Department of Defense is required uh, by congressional mandate to perform these honors at veterans' funerals. But uh, at the same time, there's been a decrease in funding for this mission.
0: In some places, it's that volunteers have stepped up to do this work. And uh, you might, instead of getting a live bugler, for instance, have a recording played of taps at a funeral uh, the Air Force said a few years ago it had to cut back on the extent of its funeral honors because of some mandatory budget cuts. Nevada, Minnesota had to reduce funding for National Guard funerals. I will say that at Fort Logan, where the honor bell tolls most often, a spokesman tells us that every request for
5: military honors at a funeral uh, is fulfilled. Fort Logan is really just an incredible place. And they it is true. They provide honors to every single veteran that is interred there.
0: I want to talk more about the bell itself. So, particularly how it was made. It's a thousand pounds. It rolls out of the back of a van, which I understand is in our parking lot as it we is, speak. It is. It uh, is to be told at the cemetery. Mostly bronze, but you have medals and other artifacts from veterans melted into it. That includes apparently dog tags and a belt buckle from Robert Raymond Abbott Jr.'s Coast Guard uniform. He held the highest enlisted rank, serving on active duty in the 1960s. His widow, Nancy Abbott, lives in Centennial. She donated these artifacts and said she had an emotional reaction when she first heard the bell toll.
2: It just brought chills to me, goosebumps on my arms, and just tears to my eyes because I was so proud of what the Honor Bell Foundation had done and then was really proud of my husband and Knowing that he would have been filled with so much pride to know that it was forged for all the veterans who had served their country in any capacity.
0: What are some of the other artifacts, perhaps
5: from different eras,
0: that ended up in this bell? Ones that stand out to you?
5: Sure. So as we were pouring the two thousand degree molten bronze into the mold, we dropped in a Purple Heart medal from a World War II veteran. We dropped in a Medal of Honor challenge coin from a Korean War veteran, Joe Sacato, here from Colorado. We dropped in, as you said, a, uh, a set of dog tags from a, a Vietnam veteran in this case. In all, we dropped in 12 military-related medal pieces, artifacts, badges, buttons, uniform items that families donated to us. And we say that the bell is forged from honor. Uh, and as those melted down and became part of the bell, it's an interesting story. Uh, the bell manufacturer, we had it done at Verdon Company in Cincinnati, Ohio, the oldest bell manufacturer in the U.S. Huh. Actually been making bells since 1842 Seven generations of Verdans have been pouring bells, and our bell was poured by Tim Verdon, uh, the great-great-grandson of the founder of the company. And uh, as he finished uh, buffing the bell and getting it all shined up, he came to me and he said, I'm you know, really sorry, but we've never had this happen before. This is the first time we've made a bell with something other than 100% bronze. Oh. And as it cooled, you can see here, he was pointing to the bell, that there are these imperfections, these pock marks in the bell. And I said, well, what caused those? He said, those are these non-bronze material that, that when it cooled came out to the top of the bell. He said, we can cover those up. You know, we have some putty and you'll never know. I said, don't you dare. That's the whole purpose of the bell. That's
0: its character. That's right. Does it affect the sound of the bell?
5: Not whatsoever. Hmm. Uh,
0: I understand that it was paid for through private donations and your largest donor is the Daniels Fund here in Denver. Was there any concern about... Uh, melting like metals into the bell, that that was some kind of dishonor to the metals themselves?
5: Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if there is even. Sure. No. Uh, whole... In fact, the opposite of that. Okay. Uh, as you heard from Nancy, uh, just a real incredible honor for these families to donate these artifacts and for them to be included. So every time the bell is tolled, some 400 times now, uh, a piece of Colorado's history is sounded throughout uh, fort logan what do you sound the bell with so the bell is a stationary bell it's not a swinging bell that you mm-hmm. might think of and so there's a clapper it's actually 65 pound ball underneath it on a on a arm and we pull a lanyard and it strikes the bell and makes the beautiful sound that you hear uh, and it lasted i think it's like 20 some odd seconds if you strike it just once i mean it really has some resonance yes it does now we strike the bell we have a we call this Rendering Bell Honors, and we do this again at the um, at the request of a family for a veteran who has passed. And we toll the bell seven times with seven seconds between each toll. You toll a bell for sorrow. You ring a bell for joy. We can think of wedding bells. They're very high-tuned bells. This bell is tuned to the musical note of A, uh, one of the lowest notes a bell can make. A musical note of A is the sound of mourning. And so it's a very, almost a haunting sound when you hear it. It's the deliberate ringing of a bell in a slow manner uh, to evoke that resonance that you're talking about. And is
0: there symbolism behind seven?
5: Yes. So seven is the number of completion. Uh, It goes back to Genesis. It goes back to many reasons. But seven, in our case, uh, signifies the veteran's life coming to a completion.
0: Hmm. Lewis, I'd like you to tell me about uh, a recent experience you had at the funeral of a World War II
5: veteran uh, who was 98 years old he was the last of his family. All of his family members, his wife, his brothers, his siblings had preceded him in death. So literally there was no uh, next of kin. And all there was at the funeral was his uh, caregiver. He had, had, you know, 98 years old. I think he had died of cancer. And out at Fort Logan, there was this call put out to all veterans, come And there were nearly 300 individuals at this person's funeral, all veterans. We had uh, the armed armed services in uniform. We had the Patriot Guard riders, the All Veterans Honor Guard. We had the Honor Bell. We had just veterans who heard about it and came out. And it's sort of a network of veterans that uh, get these notifications and come out and and show their respect.
0: None who knew him personally but but felt the connection that veterans feel uh, with one another. That's exactly Mm -hmm. right, the camaraderie.
5: Is this a bell you want tolled at your own uh, funeral? Well, I hope so. Uh, I will be uh, buried at Fort Logan, and I hope that the sound of the bell is the last thing that's heard at my funeral. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure.
0: Luis Oliveira is executive director of the Colorado-based Honor Bell Foundation, which marks the deaths of veterans. Today, the Honor Bell will be heard during a ceremony at the Horan and McConnerty Memorial Gardens in Centennial. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A sense of duty is something Matthew Novellino of Boulder says he inherited. His father was a paratrooper in Vietnam. His grandfather served in World War II. Novellino is a Green Beret in the U.S. Army Special Forces, currently in Afghanistan. He was first deployed to Afghanistan in 2013. While he was back home hiking, though, he had a flashback. It
6: inspired him to write an essay called Poppin' Twigs. Here's an excerpt he shared with us. Halfway up the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, I watched the aspens quake in the breeze, and a crisp memory resurfaced. Little twigs snapping off above my head. Delicate, white little twigs with pretty little green leaves on them. It was my first firefight, and several hours in, I had already grown dangerously complacent about gunfire. I was standing behind an armored truck, looking out across a golden field towards the long, mud-built walls and compounds to the east. The enemy had set up his fighting positions well, and the only people I could see were a woman in a bright dress and a boy in black working near her. They lingered in a small patch of crops next to a mud house with tiny, glassless windows. All kinds of fire had been raking that field from both directions, yet the boy and woman sat almost motionless as if nothing were going on. As an American soldier, I wouldn't entertain the idea of shooting anywhere near civilians. The Afghan soldiers who fought with us did not feel bound by the same guidelines. About 50 meters to my left, 1st Sergeant Shafiq was up in the turret of a Humvee, blasting away with gusto on an M240 machine gun. Hollow-eyed, I peered across the field, trying to glean anything actionable from the scene before me. Now I saw something that wasn't right, even by the standards of the day. The woman and boy were still sitting in their garden, or were they on their knees? My heart began to pound as I realized the long bursts of bullets from Shafiq's machine gun were tearing up the earth around the two civilians, sending up momentary spouts of dirt within feet of where they held frozen. I have to tell Shafiq that there is a woman and child over there, I told myself. That is not what we do. I have to go tell Shafiq. In a war that often lacked clarity, one thing was clear in my mind. We don't knowingly harm civilians, and it is our job to protect women and children no matter where they are from. That was core to my belief in what a U.S. soldier could still bring to a world clogged with shady politics and hidden motives. I broke cover from behind the vehicle and ran up the open street exposed to the field. Hey! I yelled as I came to a stop next to the Humvee. There's a woman and a kid over there. Stop shooting! The Afghan first sergeant stopped firing just long enough to look down at me with annoyance and give his reply in Dari. They're shooting at us from there. As Shafiq got back on the trigger... I turned my confused gaze in the direction of the target in question. With a long squeeze, he sent a nice line of rounds stitching through the dirt, right past the woman and boy. I guessed an enemy gunner was firing from one of those windows behind the woman and child, but why hadn't they moved? I felt helpless. I couldn't kill the bad guys, and I couldn't protect the innocent. Shafiq and the Taliban gunners, wherever they were, weren't going to stop shooting while I tried to figure it out. I was in their world and didn't know much. The one thing I did know was that I probably shouldn't stand there any longer. This is where things get blurry again. How fast did I run back between the two vehicles? How many times had I been shot at that day that I casually sauntered the last few feet towards the bumper of the truck? I'd grown numb to the sonic crack that occurs when bullets came overhead. I was facing in the direction that I had been running when I stopped, and just to my right, I saw little white twigs with plump little green leaves on them snapping off of the tree branches and somersaulting to the earth next to me. Five months after returning from Afghanistan, I stood alone amidst the beauty of spring in the Rockies, replaying this curious little memory. I marveled now at the fact that the woman and boy I had seen kneeling in the field were dummies. Just props. Were they scarecrows meant to keep the birds out of the veggies, or were they purpose-built to scare away American bullets? Either way, the Taliban gunner had intentionally set up his position behind them. He was confident enough in the fact that American soldiers don't shoot at women and children that he entrusted his own life to the decoys. In Afghanistan, it was just another one of those things. Like being amused by tiny tree branches twirling through the air while someone is trying to kill you. Like the fact that they were shooting at me because I broke cover to protect what I thought was an Afghan woman and child. As I stood, thousands of miles from the battlefield, surrounded by the beauty of Colorado, I was still unable to recall any significant emotion as I watched those little twigs getting shot from the branches above my head. What did change was that now there was a distinct feeling of fear and realization associated with that little video clip in my heart. What was normal in Afghanistan was not normal here, and months after coming home, it was just beginning to sink in. Matthew
0: Novellino of Boulder, reading an excerpt of his essay titled Poppin' Twigs. It's inspired by his time as a Green Beret in Afghanistan, where he is serving once again, and it's part of a book he's working on. You can read the essay in full at cprnews.org. Finally, on this Memorial Day, music from Denver trumpeter Joshua Trinidad. A few years ago, he released an album called "Cortege." He wrote it after going to a string of funerals for friends and family. He imagines it's music that would be played at his own funeral. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.